Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Top of the morning to you, Stephen. Oh, God. <laughs> Happy St. Patty's Day. Uh, Happy St. Patty's Day. <laughs> I'm going to do the whole episode. No, I'm just I, quit, I quit the podcast. <laughs> All right, so for those of you who don't know who St. Patrick is, oh, are you doing a snake episode? Is that what's going on? For anyone who doesn't know the folklore around St. Patrick? That's a good idea, but not today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't be too active today. It's pretty cold. What did you say it was? 13. Holy cow. Yeah. Feels like 13. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast, <laughs> what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural area, and share with you everything we learned. Now, Bill and I kind of split up the responsibilities for the next couple episodes, and he refused to tell me what he researched for today's episode, so I'm actually pretty excited to find out. So Bill, what are we talking about? Well, last episode we focused on studies that have to do with winter, with snow, and I thought since we're in March now, spring is almost here, I chose to look at studies that focused on spring phenomena. And you can actually hear some spring phenomena right around us, that squeaking call. Yeah, conqueree. Well, we have a, he's not doing the conqueree right I, now. I heard one a second ago. Yeah. So that is the red-winged blackbird. And here in Western New York, when we start seeing red-winged blackbirds in large numbers, then we know spring is right around the corner. So even though it doesn't feel like spring right, right now, uh, we are just, what, four or five days away from the first day of spring. Oh, you're right. And yeah. I do have to point out that on Facebook recently, someone posted a picture of a robin mm -hmm. and they said oh first bird of spring yeah and someone responded by saying well oh, well actually well actually and not only did they do that they posted the local records of american robins during christmas bird counts and winter counts oh to prove to that person that you know what that's the best um actually i've ever heard of because <laughs> normally it's just someone trying to like flex you know and, and not backing it up at all but come on <laughs> i just said they're sh shaking my head no but i mean there's 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 better and worse versions of that yeah. so I, i'd prefer someone sharing a link like that it was me <laughs> it actually was <laughs> your Facebook alias. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are at a site today. We should talk about this. We are sure. at a site called Sinking Ponds. This is a small, maybe, I don't even know for sure, maybe a 20-acre park, but it is this great pocket of green surrounded by suburbia. I, I can actually see a golf course on the other side of the marsh. Yeah. But this site is dominated by marsh and some lowland woods, and it is a prime site for warblers so I've always been shocked at the numbers of warblers that I see on eBird reports, not only during migration here, but even during the breeding season. So even though it's a small site, it's a nice patch of woods, it's a nice marsh. Obviously the red-winged blackbirds enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, you guys are gonna be hearing them throughout the course of today's episode. But we're not gonna be focused strictly on warblers today, but I will be talking about birds in general because some of the studies I looked at do focus on migration. But why don't we walk a little bit? Yeah. Because <laughs> Steve is getting chilly. Yeah, it is a cold day. Why don't we get out of the way? Yeah. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate that. <laughs> so while we're walking though, and before I get into my topic, I do want to mention that one thing that is new for our podcast is that our most re recent episodes, we do have transcripts available on our website. 
If you do know people that would benefit from those transcripts, please let them know. And we want to thank listener Joe Stormer, who's put in the hours and effort to make those transcripts a possibility. So thanks a lot, Joe. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And we also want to congratulate our friend Matt and his podcast and blog, In Defense of Plants. Do you know they just passed 200 episodes? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) 200 episodes. So way to go, Matt. Yeah, congrats. All right. Why don't we stop here? We're a little in a little bit of a sheltered spot. Yeah. Hopefully the mic is picking up those sounds of the red-winged blackbird. There's one. (laughs) Steve, you know about this thing called climate change going on, right? Yeah, the theory. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you think climate change is affecting plant growth in the springtime? Um, I think it might be hurting it but I'll tell you why. And that is because I think we might have some false starts for the plants. So maybe they start growing. I love putting Steve on the spot. And then, <laughs> and then maybe they get frost damage because then it snows again. I don't know. <laughs> but I think that happens all the time. So who knows? I'm just, I, I try to be as pessimistic as possible. So generally it was thought that Climate change is obviously causing us to have earlier spring. Mm -hmm. So that would mean more plant growth, right? Sure. You would think. And it was thought that this was actually, in many areas, it was one factor that was helping to slow climate change. Because if you have more plants and they're growing longer, they're going to be absorbing more carbon. That was the idea. But this study that I looked at, this is from 2018 in the journal Nature. Oh, big one. The big one. Yeah. (laughs) And this was a large international study, and satellite data was used to look at this assumption. So because of recent innovations in collecting satellite data, the data that we have available, we can now look at global patterns of this effect. Now, they said in areas of high vegetation, they can detect that light is strongly absorbed and infrared radiation is strongly reflected. That makes sense, right? Okay. And then they can use that to determine how much photosynthesis is occurring and how much carbon is taken up during photosynthesis. And this is across the globe on a point-by-point basis. Holy cow. Yeah. So when spring-like weather starts earlier, it's it's reasonable to assume that plants are going to have more time to grow and, as I said, absorb more carbon and produce more biomass. But according to this data, this isn't the case. And the data show that Yes, the northern hemisphere is in fact greener in the spring when temperatures are warmer earlier. Mm -hmm. But this impact can often be reversed by summer and autumn. And in most areas, it leads to an overall reduction of carbon uptake as a result. So it is true there is an increased growth in spring. In spring. But we just can't look at one part of the year. Right, (laughs) exactly. And it's not just like, the plants start earlier and then they just keep going until the growing season is over. Got it. So they're not sure what all the mechanisms are that are in place. They said there may be a range of reasons. One idea is greater plant growth in the spring. It may increase transpiration, obviously, and then the demand for water. Mm-hmm. This in turn is going to decrease soil moisture content. And then this results in insufficient water being available for plants later in the year. Yeah. So if you're getting an early start, you're using up your water resources sooner. Right. And especially like this year, we didn't have much of a snowpack, so I could see that being in a, having an effect as well right. on, on the water availability. Also, 
We've talked before in previous episodes about non-native species like multiflora rose and honeysuckle um, kind of getting an earlier start than everything else. So I wonder if those type of plants are going to be the ones that'll see more <laughs> Probably. growth. Well, you, you would have to, I think you would have to assume that the more adaptable plants, the generalists, right? Sure. They're going to yeah. do better. Uh, it could also be that certain plants have evolved a predetermined growth period. Yeah, because uh, a lot of them, I think, go by the amount of sunlight, I think, not not just by the temperatures. So. Right. So it doesn't matter yeah. that they start growing earlier. They're still only going to grow for so long. Wait, so what do you mean by that? Because I was thinking like photo period. So I wasn't thinking like a set amount of time. I was thinking, you know, it could make sense evolutionarily that a plant, let's say February has a really warm day. A plant won't be like, oh, I got to start growing. It's spring. Um, it'll wait until there's a certain amount of sunlight every day, like a photo period type effect. Right. Um, so it doesn't end up having that growth squanched by by a freezing period afterwards. Squanched? So, I don't know. I made up that word. <laughs> I like that word. Yeah. I think that's more what they were talking about, the photo period. Okay. Again, I'd have to go back into the paper to see, is a plant just going to grow for a set certain number of days uh, okay. or a certain range of days? Or is maybe it's also related to the photo period as well. That leads perfectly into my next point, which said they went out of their way in this paper to say, look, this is all very complicated uh, and it varies a lot on a regional basis. So they're actually in some areas, there are plants that because of the earlier spring, they are growing longer and they are absorbing more carbon than say they were two decades ago. Okay. But on average, plant productivity decreases during years that experience a warm spring. Hmm. So unfortunately, this changes climate forecasts for the worse. And we have to assume that, you know, all these consequences of, of climate change are going to be even more dramatic than previously calculated. All right, you're looking chilly. Let's yeah. walk a little more. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, so now I'm going to focus on birds and specifically on spring migration. Okay. I'll give you an easier question to answer than the last one I asked you. Sure. Yeah, that was tough. So how do you think climate change is going to affect spring migration timing, generally speaking? Okay. I think this time it is going to move it up in, in the year. So yeah. it, things will happen earlier. Yeah, obviously birds are going to move earlier once temperatures start to shift. Uh, birds are going to start migrating. So this next study that I looked at, this is actually from this year, 2019, in Ecological Indicators. And this looked at European and North American birds and the timing of their migration based on bird banding, trapping, and on volunteer observations, just like point counts, basically. Mm -hmm. And this collected data over the past five decades. And what they found is that birds in both North America and Europe have advanced the timing of their spring migration due to climate change. And the average bird has ad advanced its migration by approximately one week in those past five, de five decades. Wow. You want to look at that? Sure. I, it was just uh, the so first Steve, bud, I think. So yeah. Steve just stopped and pointed out a bud here that is not quite open, but it looks... Do you know this one? I know I should know it. All right, folks, so we have a small tree here. The end bud, it's probably about half an inch long, slender, and it's yellowish. So mm -hmm. it almost looks like a kind of a, a velvety yellow color. Yeah. And I, the only reason I know this one, it's on the top of my head, is because just a couple weeks ago I was taking a hike, and I took a picture of it mm -hmm. and took it home. This is a, a walnut. No, 
<laughs> not, not a walnut. A hickory. No. Hickory. I was going to say, yes. is it caria? Um, and I actually feel like I should know it too, because I wasn't expecting to see a hickory here. But yeah, you guys are going to have to call me out if it's not caria. Caria. And I think it has the, the one with the yellow bud. Maybe the specific epithet begins with like an L or something. I don't know. Oh. Like, Because they don't all do this. It's not all walnuts that nope. have the yellow. Hickory. Damn it. It's not all uh, hickories right. yeah, that I, have this and yellow. And I can't remember if it's a, a shagbark or a bitternut. Well, we'll put that in the episode notes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So the average migratory bird has advanced its spring migration by about one week over the past five decades. And keep in mind that that week time period, that's the average. Yeah. There are some birds that their migration has shifted a lot more than a week. Oh, yeah, okay. So the greatest advances were found among short-distance migrants that winter in Europe and North America. That was about one and a half to two days per decade. And then the long-distance migrants that winter in the tropics, they've also advanced, but their advance was was shorter, uh, anywhere from half to a little more than a day per decade. So Mm. long-distance migrants, think of the insectivorous warblers, the ones that travel down to Central and South America, and then the short-distance migrants, the majority of our ducks and our geese, these are short-distance migrants. And you're probably hearing a lot of uh, barking dogs in the distance, (laughs) those uh, Canadian geeks. (gasps) Did you say Canadian? (laughs) I also said geeks, that's the one you didn't catch. Oh, I missed that! (laughs) (laughs) Nice, I never heard that. As I said, this study was based on uh, long-term monitoring data. There were 21 different observatories, bird observatories, and then they looked at 200 different study species. So this was uh, a really broad study. Yeah. And the data that they collected, they started in 1959 Mm. and back in the early 60s. So they said, based on these changes in median migration dates, birds on on average advanced their spring migration by a little over a week. And as I said before, some species show much greater advances. They talked about one species, whooper swans, and this is the, the Eurasian counterpart of our trumpeter swan. Okay. They arrive in Finland about two weeks earlier than they did just in the 1980s. From where to where? I'm not sure where their wintering grounds are. That's the one part about this study that, that I didn't like, is they didn't really go into the individual species. Mm-hmm. I had to locate a news piece on this study to find out that comment about the whooper swan. Okay. Because they didn't really at all go into the individual species and how their individual times have changed. So the reporter who was speaking to the researchers was able to get them to give that piece of information. Okay, yeah. So the advances in spring migration dates, they're not equal across the migration season. So think about this. Early migrants have advanced their migration dates more than late migrants. So the first migrants, they're the highest, they have the highest pressure to arrive early. Why? Uh, well, think about these red-winged blackbirds. Okay. Who do we have, males or females, around us right now? Do you know? I actually don't know, but I would imagine it would be related to nesting. Right. The males have come back first. Mm-hmm. Why? What are they doing? Oh, are they building nests, like setting things up for... They're setting up territory. So you want to get the first arrivals. They're getting there because then they're going to have the best chance of breeding success. They're going to have first pick of breeding territory, first pick of nesting sites if they're the ones that build the nests. Mm-hmm. Whereas the later migrants, they're typically non-breeders. They have no rush to move north. So this asymmetry has led to an overall increase. So with these warmer temperatures arriving early, those early migrants, they're like, oh, I can leave even earlier. Mm-hmm. 
I should say they're actually not thinking that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for catching it, yeah. actually. So, <laughs> and the late, the later ones, quote unquote, are thinking, well, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not getting it on when I get to my breeding ground. So <laughs> I'm just gonna stay here as long as I can. So these arrival dates, they're linked to different factors, but one of the key factors is local temperatures. So you're talking about when do birds migrate. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure it has to do with photo period as well, but local temperatures, and they reference lots of other studies that found this, that local temperatures do play a big role. So the earlier the spring, the earlier the timing of migration, and the longer the migration season is gonna be. Got it. They also did say that birds advanced their migration dates more in Europe than here in North America because spring temperatures have risen more quickly in Europe. All right, how are you doing temperature-wise? Good-ish. <laughs> I have to keep switching hands for warmth's sake. So. so I do have to say, here in Western New York in the Buffalo area, this week on Thursday, it was 60-something. Oh yeah, I mean, oh. I took a lot of like outdoor walks around <laughs> campus. It was but... so nice. Yeah. We, we took the kids outside for recess Normally recess is supposed to be 20 to 25 minutes. After like 35 minutes, some of the kids were like, Mr. Mike, like, shouldn't we be going inside? I'm like, no, nah, we're good. <laughs> so we were outside for about an hour because <laughs> I knew it was going to be gone. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, so the next two studies I'm going to look at, take this concept of migration and delve into it a little deeper. Well, speaking of migration, <laughs> yeah. we, in about a month and a half, we will be doing our birdathon. Yeah. And what might be really useful for that is a pair of nice rubber boots. <laughs> oh, it's time for our plug. <laughs> yeah, so this episode is brought to you by Gumleaf USA. This company makes high quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. And we've actually had a few listeners already purchase some of the products from Gumleaf. Hey, thanks folks. Yeah, and if any of you guys ever want to share any of your experiences with the boots, let us know and we could Relay your message to the rest of the audience. Yes. All right, so this company makes high quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. And like Bill and I have said before, we have a pair ourselves. I don't know, Bill, what do you think? Yeah, they're super comfortable. Uh, I always get compliments on them when I'm wearing them out in the woods. They have a lot of little bells and whistles, like a gusseted zipper. They're tall. There's a buckle at the top to uh, kind of close them up a little bit. They have a lining that keeps your feet warm. And they're just great all-around outdoor boots. They're 100% waterproof, durable, and made with 85% natural rubber, so you won't have to worry about them cracking over time. They have styles for men and women, and they're great for birding, botanizing, or really any outdoor activity. And if you're interested in high-quality tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and exploring their products. It's also a really great way to support the podcast, and it'll help us do cooler things in the future. So there will be a link in the episode notes and on our website for Gumleaf USA. Check them out, folks. All right, onward and on with our studies. Yeah. <laughs> so the next one I'm gonna talk about is from 2016 in the AUK, and it looks at the speed at which birds migrate. So I promise this is my last question for you, Steve. Okay. <laughs> do you think birds fly faster in the spring when they're migrating or in the fall when they're migrating? Oh man. Um, <laughs> and this is one, I can't think of any reason why you would know this, but. So I'm wondering if it's a function of their weight. Maybe they pack a lot of food in before migration. All right, you're thinking about it too hard. <laughs> okay, fine, I have no idea. Think about it. In the spring, you have a reason to get where you're going sooner. Okay. In the fall, you're not in a huge hurry. Got it, because in the spring, you're rushing to beat everyone else to the spot before it becomes nice and 
habitable. <laughs> right. So this study used radar data. So have you seen those pictures during migration? People will post them online of weather radar, but it's showing all the birds migrating at night. Do you mean our friend Tom who posts it like every single day <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> during, during migration? That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Previously, migration studies would look at a few individuals, maybe on the scale of hundreds. Sure. But with this new radar data, they're actually documenting the behaviors of millions of individual birds on a given night. That's a lot of data. Yeah, and you know what? One thing that I will say is that I love seeing data like this, like in real time, Yeah. because it makes you like appreciate all the things you never see right that you just don't experience like when we were talking about flying squirrels they're all over the place but i never see them and i i almost never see animals like kill other animals to eat and i you know there's a million things that i don't see but you know that's going on every single day right and then when we can get a window into that yeah that's just so cool it's fascinating so because of this data they can see these flight behavior results that are regionally or seasonally different so they can just piece apart what these birds are doing on such a deeper level. Yeah. What they found in this particular study is that migrating birds fly faster and they put more effort into staying on course in the spring than in the fall. And we think it's because they're racing to arrive to their breeding grounds as soon as possible to get that edge. Arriving late can neg negatively affect reproductive success. So previous studies have shown that migrants, migrants do take shorter breaks in the spring but it was always hard to tell whether they also moved faster in the air. That's what I wanted to know. I'm like, is it just, you know, their average miles per hour has changed? No, no, no. So this radar, this high-tech weather radar, and this stuff's operated by NOAA uh, and the Department of Defense, they found that birds did indeed fly faster in the spring and compensated more for crosswinds that could blow them off course. Wow, okay. And the next set I'm gonna talk about actually looks at that more in depth. Got it. How fast birds are flying. Now, on a radar, what does a prairie warbler look like versus a hooded warbler? <laughs> the, the, the answer is that the, they don't. <laughs> they don't look different. They're both colored dots. <laughs> yeah. But they can use that radar. They can look at how birds are oriented directly for the first time. Yeah, because without like telemetry data, it would be really like, and you need to hook a bird up with some technology to do that. Right. So without, uh, this is a way where we don't need to interfere at all. We can just pick them up on radar and, right. and see their positioning over time. Well, as far as we know, we're not interfering at all. Maybe the radar <laughs> right. is somehow uh, affecting their, uh, what was it called? What was the gland? Uh, oh, oh, <laughs> the, the one that fluoride hardens and it turns their <laughs> spiritual powers off. Yes. Oh, what is that one? I know it's not the pituitary gland, no, but that's it's- that's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we talked about this last episode with the uh, snowshoe hares, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, you think. Okay. Well, I talk about the next study because sure. I know you're just going to tune me out anyway. Oh, I usually do, yeah. <laughs> so I think this is a good point before I talk about the last episode. We received an email just in the past two days. Someone who just got in touch with us, you know, a wonderful email saying about all the nice things that they liked about our podcast. And the last line <laughs> I love said you should do more episodes where steve is just the comic relief <laughs> now because <laughs> bill seems to think that it's because she just liked how much he did research <laughs> better than me right <laughs> but i think 
it was because she was complimenting how entertaining I am. <laughs> and Bill was like, we got to give Steve more things to do next time. <laughs> yeah, so the last episode, folks, if you haven't listened, uh, it's kind of like this one. Oh, yeah. Where mm -hmm. I did the, the research and Steve just held the mic. Yeah. <laughs> and made comments throughout. Yeah, so, right. Although you've been kind of quiet today. Because uh, I'm trying to think of this gland. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we were talking about this before we, we turned on the mic, and this listener, she did something pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not too crazy, no. but but so uh, as she In a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as she's been listening to the podcast, she's been making a list, an, an ongoing list of bird species that she's been picking up. Wow. So that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we can always share the list with everyone. Yeah, thank you um, for that. Yeah, so thank you very much. Yeah, well, we'll get her name because... We didn't think to bring it, but yeah, 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 we'll have it on the next episode. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's get back to the study. So I mentioned that this study was going to look at how fast birds are flying. Now, one thing that was known is that birds that f migrate at night tend to fly faster in spring than they do in autumn to reach where they're going. The seasonal difference in flight speed, it's especially noticeable among birds that are short distance migrants. These guys, the ones that aren't going as far, they have the luxury of waiting until winds are just right. So these researchers, as we keep saying, they shut up. What? It's the pineal gland or pineal gland. Or that something. sounds right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and Bill, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. <laughs> no, not at all. So the researchers, as we keep saying, they suspect that birds fly faster in spring because they're trying to get to their breeding grounds first, choose the best territories. So while this time saving made in spring might seem minuscule, uh, these time savings, they are important because they influence the arrival order of individual birds. In, in autumn, birds can take things more slowly because they're not as pressured to reach their wintering grounds. Now, wind is one weather condition that influences birds' decisions the most about when to take off. And I gotta say, the researchers did use that word, decision. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. okay. And the researchers found that Pasturing birds can actually fine-tune their flights to make full use of winds, making their flying and subsequent migration easier. And it did seem that short-distance migrants did this more often. So we're going to talk a little bit about airspeed versus ground speed here, because I didn't know the difference between these terms. I don't know if you did. Well, I'm thinking one is like the Roadrunner from the old Coyote and Roadrunner <laughs> cartoons. So that's like the ground speed, right? So the ground speed is your speed relative to the ground. <laughs> okay. The other one is air speed, and that's your speed relative to the air around you. Oh. So air is moving. So does up. that have to do with like Mach 1 and Mach 2? I have no idea. Because isn't the reason you get that <laughs> sonic boom is has something to do with the relative speed you're going compared to the air around you? Okay. I think so. <laughs> Who knows? Because I think it's like... Oh, I don't know, guys. I don't know enough about this stuff. But <laughs> All right. So these birds are making use of wind assistance. Short-distance migrants have higher ground speed, so they're flying faster relative to the ground than air speed. Okay, so they're not much different than the air is moving around them. Are you Now you're going to compare this to long-distance migrants? Correct. Okay. So long-distance migrants are often traveling where air speeds are exceeding ground speeds and this is resulting from flying into headwinds oh they're okay. flying into headwinds right oh so okay if you're flying let's say if you're flying five miles an hour forward 
but the wind is moving five miles an hour backwards. Is your yeah, airspeed gonna... 10, mile, 10 miles an hour? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. But what this all means is that long distance migrants receive very little wind assistance on average. Okay. It's basically like I have such a long way to go, I can't wait for the winds to be right. Okay. I got to go when my instinct is telling me to go. So they're not taking advantage of wind direction or anything right. like that. They're just powering through. Where a short distance migrant could say, eh, winds I, aren't great tonight. I got time. I'm just going to pop up when the wind's right. Right. So short distance migrants, they have a more flexible flight schedule. Work smarter, not harder. That's right. So while <laughs> when you can, when you can afford it. <laughs> okay. But this waiting for good wind conditions, it will save them energy, but it will prolong their migration. Right. That makes sense. Yep. It's kind of like a crapshoot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying it's a gamble. I mean, it, it could, it could, they could be there early. They could be there later. Like it, they just don't control it all that much. Right. And the researchers did go on to say that these results indicate fine-tuned seasonal modulation of airspeed and responses to wind. So associated with different strategies that they have going on, passer and birds are adapted to different levels of time selection pressures during their spring and autumn migration, you know, depending on whether they're short distance or long distance migrants. Got it, okay. All yeah. right, so that was all I had for today on <laughs> okay. migration and then also on plants in spring. So those are our, our springtime studies. Yeah, so we, we dealt with the most important organisms, the plants and the birds. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> There's nothing else to think about. <laughs> now, I gotta try to come up with as good of a pun as I came up with for the last episode, for the hair episode. Oh, receding hairline. Rec I thought that was a, a shot at me. What? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I would no, I'm never kidding. do that. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'm glad you said that. That is the perfect segue because I do have a shot at you. Oh, good. So last episode, folks, if you didn't listen, I would say stop and at least go back and listen to the last part of the episode where Steve trashes Charles Darwin. Okay, I think you're exaggerating that a little bit. So this is some of what Steve said. Yeah. Darwin doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it doesn't matter what he said because it could all be wrong. Uh-huh. We would have eventually figured out all this stuff anyway. Yeah. And my favorite Steveism. <laughs> Darwin is a fleck of garbage on the side of history. <laughs> now that was some strong rhetoric that I was trying to go so far in the opposite direction. Of course, of course, I don't literally mean that. I was trying to speak, uh, I, was, I was just trying to add some color to what I was trying to sure. say, to hit my point home. I believe that's called hyperbole. Yeah, there was a lot of hyperbole involved. And Charles Darwin, brilliant man, came up with a great theory of evolution. But my point that I was trying to bring up was that there no is there is no authority in science. Okay. Or there shouldn't be an authority in science. There can be great, brilliant people that come up with very useful ideas, and then it could turn out that they're wrong. True. For example, Aristotle was wrong about nearly everything he believed. <laughs> and Darwin, he proposed this he proposed evolution, but he didn't have all the mechanisms down. So sure. even though he had this idea he didn't actually have the evidence to back up his idea. So at his time, for someone to say, oh, this is true, would have been wrong because right. it, it, you would have been making too big of a claim based on the evidence. And over time, we built up evidence and 
the only way evolution would be wrong is if we're living in a, <laughs> I don't know, like a, a uh, the matrix. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like some type of uh, like illusion, hallucination or something. Right. So reality would have to be fundamentally different than we expect it to be for, right. for evolution to be incorrect. So, All right, because, yeah. you know, I'm one of those people that when someone makes a strong point like that, yeah, I have a hard time responding right away. So Sure, no, I'm glad you had some time to think about over it. Over the Let's... past month, I've been stewing about yeah. it. Okay. No, no. Bill, Bill has heroes, unlike me. So No, no. And one point we made last episode was you said that we shouldn't have heroes. And yeah. I, I will say that as I've become older, I've become very wary of um, putting someone on that hero pedestal. And I think it's unfair to do that to people, Yeah. to expect them to be, to be perfect. But I feel like almost what you just said kind of undercuts most of my points, because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make the point that one thing you did say is that to hold Darwin up isn't giving credit to the people that came after him or before him, where you were almost were making it sound like it's a level field. And thinking about it, I'm saying, well, no, because there's bad scientists, there's good scientists, there's a spectrum. And I don't think anyone would argue that he wasn't a great scientist. But not only that, he was a great science communicator, which is so hugely important because science needs to impact everyone hopefully right and if it's not communicated well that's a problem it's it doesn't take place in a vacuum yeah so i would say i agree with bill i think that bill and i are much more valuable than all the researchers that we <laughs> cite in our episode no, that, that, that was going to be one of my points like even if we end up doing this podcast for the rest of our lives, yeah. what we're doing is nothing compared to what Charles Darwin did. Sure, right. Even we, if, we, we probably wouldn't be doing what we're doing without Charles Darwin. Right. Uh, and, and also, just to give it some context, like I feel it's important to say what he did, there was an element of bravery and courage to what he did because publishing his work, his, his Origin of the Species, was a slap in the face, in a lot of people's minds, to the church. His wife had a problem with it. A lot of people say that's why he took decades to do it because he was worried about the impact and what it meant. He was a he was a great man, and I think it's worth holding up those people not necessarily as a hero, but as an inspiration. And and just just again for the audience, I was misrepresenting my own opinions <laughs> on Charles Darwin just to to be funny to play up a bit okay. um but but it's still there is an underlying truth to it that that even though i do think charles darwin was a great man i value the scientific method more than any individual scientist and the nice thing about science is that you let's just say hypothetically there's such a thing as like a genius but if he doesn't have science if he or she doesn't have scientific training in my mind that genius is going to go to waste in terms of figuring out the universe I was, if that's what your goal is I, there, there can be geniuses and many things that have nothing to do yeah. with a scientific uh, effort but i would um, agree i would say without the scientific method or, or scientific practices the genius wouldn't reach the full potential even come close probably to reaching the full potential no, it and, could. and i'm just looking at everyone who's ever come before modern science sure. they, there have been brilliant people that just get everything wrong because they don't have a method to figure out the world yeah. and and there's so much value to that where someone even like me who is clearly not anywhere near a genius i can just follow the scientific method and and all these findings and methods from the people that came before me and i can find novel exciting things that no one else has ever seen in the universe before you know and 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 there's there's some value to that method that 
it doesn't matter how smart you are. As long as you learn this technique, you can discover things with the smartest people out there. Yeah. So, and it, it takes away as much bias as possible. And it really, it's super careful and it's, it's really scared to get things wrong. So, and Charles Darwin is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anything else? No, I think that's it. I just have two small bits that I wanted to share with the audience. Sure. So the first one was a comment we received on our Downey Harry game episode. It was a couple episodes back. And in that, I was wondering why the American Ornithologists Union didn't have the Downey and Harry Woodpeckers, their genus and species, updated with the rest of the world, it seemed. Mm -hmm. And this person wrote in and said, according to the newest supplement to the AOU checklist, and the AOU is the American Ornithologists Union, Many North American scientific journals reference this checklist regarding scientific names of birds. They say that now both the downy and the hairy woodpeckers are put into the genus Dryobates. Okay, because that is not... My notes, I didn't have them as Dryobates. Yeah, me neither. And speaking of Dryobates, I wondered the whole time if we were saying it right. Yeah. Because like part of me wanted to say Dryobates or something. Because you know sometimes they'll do that, they'll put weird emphasis on, yeah. Yeah, on the E's in weird ways. Because I've seen other ones that are spelled the same way as dryobates, but you pronounce it, if you were to do it the same way, it would be like dryobetes or something, which is- <laughs> That sounds bad. Yeah, it sounds weird. It's like diabetes. Diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> so the only two species left in Pacoides, this person said, are the black-backed and the American three-toed woodpeckers. The birds of North America through Cornell also follows this classification. So that's good to see. Sure. So thanks for that comment. Mm -hmm. And then question I have, maybe you'll be able to answer it if, if for any, uh, listener can answer this. I've been wondering this for years. Why in iTunes, whenever you look at our podcast, does it say one of the main related podcasts is Snark Monkey? Oh, uh, well, I'll tell you why. Why? I think because iTunes had messed up at a certain point and they replaced Indefensive Plants with Snark Monkey. So Matt had to recreate his podcast and he lost all of his reviews because if you go to that podcast, a lot of the reviews will actually be for indefensive plants <laughs> and not snark monkey so it was like a weird glitch in the system so matt had to matt had to re-upload his stuff and had to start over from zero reviews okay and he had to slowly build up and he's he's far surpassed us at this point oh, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was back a couple years ago now that uh, that happened so all right i'm glad i got that cleared up yeah thank you steve <laughs> go support matt and if a long time ago you left a, a review for Indefensive Plants, just go and make sure that you still have that review there. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm sure he, he may have said something within the last two years, but it's always good to just double check. Yeah. Anything else? No, so uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to give thanks to our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Pollywog, Jacqueline Roki, Sean Marion, Jessica Daniels, and Crow's Path. We're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. Rob, we named the dog Indy, Dean, Christina, and Gavin. And especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, Susan, Rachel, Orange Julian, and Alyssa. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you, you guys so much. Thank you so much. Uh, and we also want to thank our new five-star reviewer on iTunes. So thank you, CKBones33. So thank you so much, and keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Oh, and did you see we got a, a message from somebody suggesting that we set a Patreon goal, almost like a, okay, hey, folks, help us get to 100 patrons or 
something like that. That's a good idea. We should try to do something like that. Yeah, maybe. And guys, we do have to apologize. And you guys know the deal when you become patrons is that Bill and I were very busy. We try to do as much as we can, try to put bonus episodes out, but we barely have enough time to put the actual regular podcast (laughs) up. So it's our great hope to do more things for you guys in the future. I also have to apologize for the stickers. I'm horrible at sending those out. And today I'll grab a bunch of envelopes put your addresses on them and send them out. So I'm sorry for those of you who've been waiting for a long time, but I'll make sure to get those out. I I just, I've been finding myself cooped up in a lab every single night. So I'm sorry about that, guys. What's more important, work or the podcast? (laughs) Well, it's like my personal research slash work slash the podcast. It's tough. It's a balancing act. Well, if you want to get in touch with us and encourage Steve to send out more stickers or spend more time on the podcast. Or encourage me to stop making excuses. (laughs) You can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook. You can also tweet at us at fieldguidespod. Check out our Instagram at Field Guides Podcast. And you can always check us out on our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And again, <laughs> one last excuse. Things have been busy. I totally forgot to talk to Always Wandering Art again. But I'm sure they'll give us artwork for this episode. <laughs> so please go check them out. Their website, alwayswandering.com. And then we always have links to their Facebook and Etsy pages in the episode notes. So definitely give them some love. Go check out their stuff. And thank you to gumleafusa.com. Yeah, and links to them in the episode notes as well. We hope you enjoyed the episode, folks, and we'll see you next month. Yep, we'll see you in April.